Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please go to BethelCleveland.com. Love Evolution, learning to love well. Did you know you can learn to love? You can learn to do about anything. Uh, somehow in charismatic American Christianity, we've kind of removed effort. We say, well, no, I don't, because somehow in our minds we equate that with legalism. You know, that if I have to do something, if I have to actually use energy, that, that's not God. I don't know where that came from, but it is not biblical. It is heretical. God actually, through his Holy Spirit, energizes a scripture I used, I think, two weeks ago out of Philippians, to will and to do. The will and the do. The will is, be, is to be shaped by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit when you're born again. Did you know that? It says that in Ephesians 1.13. That the Holy Spirit comes into you and touches you in that moment, is dwelling in your life. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the effervescent, overflowing release of power that happened on the day of Pentecost when the church was initiated by the Holy Spirit. And what a powerful time that was. And it took Peter, who had just denied Jesus some 50 days before that, just took him and made him into an amazing, courageous giant of the faith. Just in one moment. It's what the Holy Spirit can do. So with your energy, because I did read this last week, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's an aspect of our life that we work out, just like you work out in a gym, which I do not know a lot about. But you work out in a gym. You work out in the Spirit, the Word of God, praying, fellowship. All these things are muscle builders in the Spirit and literally touch you in a powerful way to cause you to have immunity to the attacks of the enemy. I should say to the results of what the attacks would be. The enemy will still attack you, but you're impervious. You're strong because of Jesus Christ, by the power of his word. It's why we come here every Sunday, not to just fulfill a religious tradition. We come on Sunday because we understand there's something unique that God ordered this up in his understanding, the ecclesia. He called it up. It's fashioned differently all over the world. I have no problem with the different ways that it's expressed around the world. But the bottom line is it's an assembly of people coming together in the power of the Spirit of God to be strengthened, to be encouraged. Do you know that we are like the only, almost the only subset group in America that gets together every week and sings together? Like nobody sings out there. Did you know that? I mean, they may sing to a few rock tunes on the radio when they're listening. That's if they're older. They may sing to some, some various songs that have come out over the years, whatever your genre is. You know, yeah, you get those few little words, you sing to it. You're in the car, you're in the shower, no one knows about it, and you're just really singing away. This is a little bit different, though. We come together and collectively, it's been proven over and over again, it produces sociologically stability in your lives to come together and sing on a weekly basis. That was really quiet there. I thought that was a pretty exciting comment, you know. We came and we just sang, you just did a spirit workout. How do you feel? That's good. 
We spoke words over you. We prophesied. We sang together. We danced. That's why I try lifting my hands in worship. I know that when I lift my hands, it's a spiritual act. When I lift my hands, it is effort. I know it seems small, but even when you dance and you jump, it, it releases power. I think dancing and jumping is like deliverance. You know, you're squashing the grapes. <laughs> you ever seen that? I mean, you're, you're squashing those grapes. You're squashing those grapes. You're creating wine with your feet. You know, you lift your hands unto the Lord. It's like you're touching other atmospheres. Did you see this week? Captain Kirk went up in outer space. Did you see his response when he came down? I watched it live. He came down with, Je- he was with Jeff uh, Bezos, Bezos. And uh, Jeff was obviously very preoccupied in it. But uh, William Shatner, Captain Kirk, 90 years old. Oldest man to go to outer space. Happened this week. And he came back and when he got off, he was like, he was doing this. He was like, he's looking around down like this. No one had come over to him yet. And then they come over and looked at him. He was, he'd only been up, what was it, 12, 11 to 13 minutes, something like that. Yeah, 11 minutes, something like that. And actually, they were weightless for four minutes because some, something about at the end of four minutes, you start to get nauseous, so they bring you down right at the time that you're, not, you're starting to not feel well. So they shoot this rocket up into space. You go up there, wow! You look around, four minutes goes by quick, and then you're soaring back down, and you land in the middle of the desert of West Texas, you know? So I watched it. He got off. I was curious. I love Captain Kirk. I love Star Trek. I grew up with that. And so I'm like, wow, a man who's been all over the universe on TV. What's his feeling now about this little flight up and down, you know? He was wrecked by it. He was wrecked by it. He said, he kept saying at first, he said, the blue, the blue, the blue that I've never seen that color blue before, and he said, and the, the, the insignificance, the vulnerability of who we are, how small we are. I mean, Jeff Bezos, one of the wealthiest men in the world, is just trying to interview him, and he's having a meltdown, man. He is just like, it's like he had a God experience. He said, I looked down, and I saw blue. I looked up, and I saw black. He said, it's life, and it's death. He said, it's like our lives. We just so quickly... Go from life to death. And then there's nothing out there. I mean, he was just, he was overwhelmed by the experience. The communication of it was powerful. I mean, I got emotional watching it because I thought this guy's had a God encounter in outer space. He went up and somehow this whole process, how many of you know God uses natural things to speak to us? It says that in Romans chapter one. The natural things speak of the invisible. Imagine what it's like when you break through the barrier and go into outer space. He said, it was such a thin layer. He said, of course, he brought about environmental things. I have no problem with that. But he said, he said, there's this thin layer that kind of protects us. And it's so, so vulnerable, you know. And, and I thought, yeah, it's been articulately, clearly, masterfully crafted by the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, you know. But the words are so powerful when you speak to somebody who's had an experience, it, it can jar your life. That's why testimony is so powerful. And they overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. Our words build worlds. Our words create 
worlds. Our words to our little children create a world that they live in with boundaries that may hold them back. Now, there's good boundaries that are meant to be temporary until they can establish their own boundaries. That's what raising a child is. You do need to give boundaries to children. But at some time, they, they understand there's that, that limit. But some of those boundaries at times can be mental boundaries that hold them back from amazing catalytic rise at different areas of their life. I've talked to people over and over again who've accomplished major things in life, what we would deem success. And on the other side of that, or in the midst of that success, that you can tell there's a brokenness, a depth of hurt and wound in their own lives that you can, I can just tell you that I know some of you that are broken or you're impoverished or you're difficult. If you struggle for years, you go, if I just had X amount of dollars, my whole life would change. And there's a lot of studies that's been done on that. And with most people in the United States, they think that $2,000 would change their life. Yeah, you imagine that? If I could just get $2,000, it would change my life, you know? And so there's, there's people out there that are broken. They have a need of somebody who's been somewhere else, who's experienced God, who can speak from that realm, that realm of the kingdom of God into our temporal lives. I read a quote this week. I didn't bring it with me. I should have, but uh, Patrick, St. Saint Francis, St. Francis, the 13th century, Later on, a, uh, a philosopher appeared, I think it was in Florence, named Dante. Dante uh, wrote a play-like poem uh, that uh, became very uh, famous throughout time. In fact, probably the most significant poems in the middle, medieval times in the Middle Ages. And he, out of that, spoke and said, St. Francis rose like the sun out of Assisi into a dark and gloomy world. What did he do? One man came forward with the light of God, a man who was broken, a man who had seen arms cut off in battle, a man who had seen his friends killed, a man who had spent time in prison, a man who was raised in wealth and was a little bit cocky, kind of a playboy type guy. But when he got into the military and got captured and put in prison, his life began to change. So was he overwhelmed that he, when he rode home on a horse, he saw someone with leprosy. And to express the love of Christ, he got off and kissed him on the forehead. Something you just did not do in that time. What happened? What happened? One encounter, one word that is spoken, there's power that can come in to change the depths of a person's life. Cindy got me a uh, National Geographic this week and uh, I uh, was reading through it because it's, uh, it's on uh, blue zones. And I love blue zones. Blue zones are, are places around the world where there's a disproportionate amount of people that live healthy. And, and many live to be over 100 we had a Uber driver about a year ago in Florida was telling us about this. His mother and his uh, mother in Italy uh, and his aunt uh, lived to be 110. So uh, makes you want to move to Italy, you know. But it's lifestyle. So, but they came up with nine things. And it's interesting that three of the things that are listed here of the nine things that produce a a life of peace and health, and you know, it's coming from a secular perspective. It's interesting, let me just give you a few and then we're gonna look at scripture here in a minute, but it says, uh, uh, having purpose beyond work. So they separate out work, because sometimes work is just, the purpose is to create uh, money to pay for your bills. That's a reasonable purpose. And really up until about 100 years ago, that's pretty much what everyone did. 
Now everyone's like, well, that's really not my thing. I have, you know, I'm a, on the Enneagram, I'm a number seven, and I, I prefer this guy. I mean, we, we have so diced this thing down that we stay at home and watch Netflix. <laughs> sometimes you just get a job because you need a job. And sometimes the motion of that getting a job actually opens other doors for you, and you could advance, you know. So I encourage you, get a job. That's my advice on that. But anyway, if you get a sense of purpose beyond work, so something in your life where you realize, I know why I'm here. And this is a huge market right now, people who do not know. I wrote a book on it. People who do not know where they are. It says that, and when you find that, you add seven years of extra life. Seven years on your life when you know your purpose. I don't know how that works. I'm already 60, turning 65 in about a month and a half. I don't know if you know you could, if it's too late to find my purpose and to get peace in my life, but but you can. It'll add seven years on your life if you have a social circle of close people, five friends, and create community. Uh, you add years to your life. Uh, let me give you one more here. If you hang out with your loved ones, in other words, this is a good one. If you have a life partner what we call a marriage. If you have a marriage, you can add up to three years of life expectancy. If it's a bad marriage, take off three. No, it's not. It's a... So you... Wait, we add years? I'm sorry, was that too much? We, we add years to our life, and all three of these are dependent upon our communion of love. That when you know, you know, loving yourself is knowing my purpose, knowing where I am, and being excited about that, something about that settles everything in your life. I believe that. There's flow. There's fluidity that comes out of that. When you have close friends, they recommend five. You have about your five, five close friends. There's something that it does to you. That's why our small groups are so important. If you don't have a close group to be with. It's good to get with a small group. Even people that are diverse and different than the way you are, it will work things out in your life that you didn't realize. You say, well, I don't want things worked out in my life. Well, that's a whole other issue because we are called as learners. Our entire life is to, is to live well, love well, and learn well. Live well that doesn't mean it's perfect. It means somehow I always bounce out of these things and move on because I know who I am and I know where I'm going. I'm loving well. I'm learning how to communicate in ways. Did you know to love well, you have to learn how to communicate? I want to read a verse out of Proverbs 25 if you want to go with me to Proverbs 25. Okay, covered Shatner, covered National Geographic. Good to go here, all right. Proverbs 25, we're going to pick two verses out of Proverbs uh, as we jump into this. Um, I'd love to talk about love languages, but I may not have time. But um, there is, people do have, I don't know that love language is a perfect science, but what I can tell you is from my experience is that people do receive love differently. And even between genders, I think there's a, there's a huge difference and how love is expressed. So you've got gender complications. You've got 
broad people complications with different personalities, different love languages. This is the study of life, is actually being a Jesus person that looks at others and say, how can I love them well? Especially people you're with a long period of time. You know, someone you're working with, someone that you live with. Uh, somewhat your boss or whatever it might be. How can I learn to love this person? This is a Jesus standard that you learn to love other people because that power of love can drive out fear in bad environments. Proverbs 25, verse 11, you know this verse well, but it says this, a word fitly, I like that word. It means that it fits, just like a puzzle piece. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. It's got value. It's got beauty. Some contrast between the goldness of the fruit and the silver platter. If you put fruit on a platter, something about it is enticing to our visual eye. The way we were made was to seek and see beauty. And you respond to beauty. Beauty touches you like few other things on the planet. I read a book some years ago called Beauty Will Save the World by uh, Brian Zahn. Great book. I encourage you to find it. It's a great Christian book. But it, it opens up the world of beauty that God is more into beauty than what you think. The descriptions of heaven, the descriptions of everything that is good in God is so detailed and so powerful. The descriptions of the beasts around the throne and the angels and everything else, it creates all this wonder in our minds and hearts, you know. But when you go around, the Bible gives us understanding. And by the way, St. Francis and St. Patrick both blew the world open on these things that there's beauty out there and God is into beauty. In the Middle Ages, the church shied away from beauty, thinking that anything natural or earthly was evil. It denied natural pleasure. And so I was mentioning this to the BSSM students on Friday. What happens is in medieval art, you see everyone with hung heads. They're all like this. They're all like this. They're like this. And, and the children look like adults. Jesus in the manger looks like he's about 40. This picture, it's like, what are they thinking? It's that's not a baby. It's kind of creepy, actually. You know, but they to pass, to be honored by the church and commissioned by the church and accepted by the church of that day, it had to toe the line of the theology of the day. And the theology of the day was this. Aren't you glad we don't have that now? I made that, it was kind of a joke, actually. But, yeah, we do have that, we do have that. I mean, when you talk about God is good, I mean, everyone's like, oh, well, y'all, what do you mean by good? I mean, the, the, the poor suffering and people around the world, I mean, they're always coming up with stuff. Well, I, I know all that, I know that, but God is good. He is good. And he's affecting a response here on planet Earth that is beautiful. I mean, he wants to, he creates in you when you're born again, he creates the potential for magnificent beauty in your life. I mean, I'm not just talking about art. We always think about maybe I'm gonna be an artist or I'm gonna sing or whatever. No, no, your life becomes beautiful. Your actual narrative becomes beautiful in your life. There's something about the grace of God that comes over your life that when you're old, you can look back over and say, I fought the fight. I fought a good fight. I finished the course and I kept the faith. 
Henceforth, it's laid up for me, this crown of righteousness. I mean, it's that step out of earth into heaven is a satisfaction that many people will not and do not have right now that you've touched and satisfied. I was watching a TV show this week. I get ministered by everything. <laughs> TV show, and they're talking about rich people and richer people. And a rich man went to a richer people's person's island and he had everything he wanted, but he was totally stressed out. He was on the phone all the time and everything else. And so the guy, the guy was interviewed when he got back, the less richer person. And he said, well, how do you, how'd you feel about being among that massive wealth? We're talking like a million dollars and a billion dollars, you know. It's a big difference, thousand, thousand dollars, thousand times different. So you look at it and you go, what, what was the difference? And he said, well, I had something he didn't have. What's that? He said, I had something that obviously some people never get. What is that? What is it? What is it? He said, enough. There's something about knowing in your life that when you get to the end of your life, you're able to say, it was enough. I don't want to leave saying, I should have done more, could have done more. Why didn't I love more? I mean, I know that's kind of going to be there anyway. But I want to come to my final breath, as we've seen so many people in the past year with COVID and everything else happening. I want to be the final breath. I've gone to like... Well, we've had three people that I knew closely that died from COVID within the past month. And just seeing them, you know, in the casket or, or however, you know, the pictures, whatever, it's, you're reminded of it. The thing that comes to your mind is they, they were all younger, younger as in 60s. I say that because I'm in my 60s. But you look at it and you go, did they feel fulfilled in what their life really was purpose for? Beauty is important. Proverbs 18, look at Proverbs 18. Okay, we're gonna run real fast. I got 12 minutes here. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says this. You probably know this verse by heart. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let me repeat that. Death and life, so there's two doors in front of you, is in the power of your tongue what you say in the book of James, if you read James 1, 2, and 3, there's a lot in there about the tongue. The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a rudder. The tongue directs your life. It's the smallest thing on the ship, really, but it seems very insignificant. But that rudder takes you to where you need to go. Fire. It's like a fire. It consumes stuff. It comes. It's like the, the tongue. It says in the Bible, is like the fire of hell. Your tongue has the power to damn people. Your tongue has the power to curse people. Your tongue has the power to destroy someone's life. And people do do that. Also in James, it says, can sweet and bitter water come out of the same fountain? You know, it's, it's this rhetorical challenge of how can somebody who's filled with the Spirit of God allow their mouth to speak things that are gossip and slander and brokenness and hate and everything else in this church from the beginning, from the first day we started 25 years ago, I talked about the prophetic. Because to me, the prophetic was a trainer for the tongue. That you learn to speak what God would say. That even if you weren't getting massive revelation, you can actually prophesy over someone by using the words of the Lord. The Lord would say that I love you. He said, well, how has that changed people? Well, when you're in the right moment and someone, someone knows that God loves them, it changes their life. I was in a prophetic session a year ago in Raleigh, North Carolina. And a woman that we've known for years and actually administered in this, into this church, uh, Shara Pradham Chambers, uh, which was here, I think, in 08 or 09, somewhere around there. Powerful time. 
And uh, anyway, she's prophesying over me in Raleigh, and she's going through the prophetic word. It was a powerful word. It was one of those words that identified, identified with immediately. I went home and I, I uh, mapped it on my wall. When I get certain prophetic words, I, I word map them on the wall so I can understand them a little bit better. I keep them up there. I look at them, and, and they're, they're life-changing. But she got to a one point. I've shared this before, but let me share it again. One point, she paused, and she said, Steve, said my name. But when she said my name, honestly, this is a freak out moment. I heard the name, my name in Jesus' voice. It wasn't her voice. It was a male voice. It was strong, but it was compassionate. That's all he said, Steve. It shocked me. I began to weep. Every time I talk about it, I get to weep. It's like, oh, Lord, you know my name. I'm not just a number. I'm not out there, you know my name. I even hear the rest of the prophetic word. I recorded it, fortunately. I encourage everyone to record words like that. But it was so powerful. Why? There's life and death and the power of the tongue. You mean that someone can be healed by just saying, Steve, Jennifer, Francis, Robert, Nicholas, I mean, when you hear the voice of the Lord, it changes your life. And then when I get that, I think, oh my goodness, how many words come out of my mouth every day? Things I say, things that I say that I'm thinking that I should keep in the thinking realm and not even say. Things that come out, woundings, hurts, and positive things, encouraging, building someone up. How can I possibly train my mouth and train my mind to speak and do what the word of God would want me to do, what Jesus himself, WWJD, what would Jesus, in this case, say? How would he say it? And so what we do is, some of us just go, well, the Holy Spirit will give me the words. I mean, we take some scripture out of there and go, I'll know the right thing to say. I found out in my history that people tend to not know what to say in difficult times. And so if we're not careful, we say something we regret. And so I've studied this a little bit over the years and thought, Lord, how can I learn to speak better? Because speaking better is a way of loving well. You love people because you say the right things. I, I pulled up a list. I, I may or may not get to it. But a list of uh, things that, you know, when people have suffered loss or whatever, things to say and things not to say. But let's go a little bit further here. So the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18 is life and death and the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Uh, so proficiency, let me just share this real quick and then we'll get to an activation here at the end. Proficiency comes through practice. Uh, that's scriptural. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, it says this. Paul speaking to Timothy says, reject profane and old wives' fables and he uses this word, exercise yourself toward godliness. What? Exercise yourself? What does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. The, the word that, that is used there is a Greek word that we use for gymnasium. In fact, it sounds very much like gymnasium. So he's saying gymnasium yourself toward godliness. Practice, work out these things of godliness. It will move you toward godliness. It says this in verse eight, for bodily exercise, he's making a parallel, profits a little. Godliness is profitable for all things. 
So there is a desire that needs to be in our heart that says, I want to be godly. How do I do that? I wish I could learn godliness. You can. You can. You can practice godliness. You can practice and do things that are not natural for you to do in order to love and minister to the other person. You can easily say, well, I just don't know what to say. It's just who I am. I've never always been like that. I never know what to say. I was raised that way. My parents didn't know what to say. No one knew what to say in our family, and that's why I don't know what to say. <laughs> but we can change. Well, I'm just waiting for God. If he touches me, I'll change. <laughs> it's like, well, he did touch you. The Holy Spirit actually lives within you and is unemployed right now. He's waiting. Imagine being the Holy Spirit. They don't need me for anything. They don't do much. They just kind of pretty much like they were when they came to Jesus. The shaping of the power of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ magnifies Christ before the world. When people see the change in your life, stuff happens. And so what do you do? You practice, you exercise godliness. It says for body exercise profits little, godliness profits for all things. Having a promise of life. Oh, that's the, that's the uh, uh, National Geographic article here. There's probably one thing in here. There's nine on the list, but there's probably one thing that's not in there. An intimate relationship with the creator of the universe is transformational. But there are things you can do as Steve Witt and say, I'm going to improve my life. I'm going to improve. That's why we learn a big part. Is, do you know what disciple means? Disciple, use that a lot. The 12 disciples were 12 learners. That's what it means. 12 learners. Jesus called learners and then told them, learn of me. I mean, throughout scripture, he says things like, uh, I've learned to be content. Paul says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. How did he be able to deal with circumstances? He learned. He learned how to be content in it. You say, well, how do you do that? You do it by going into the, the valley of discontent. And you learn to be patient. And you learn to be persevering. And you learn to come out. That is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of spirit comes out as you move in the things on this side of heaven. God uses it to shape your life, to change your mouth, and to get you to speak and see and hear in the ways that God would do it. That's called godliness. And he has called all of us to it. Every one of us. There's no salvation without it. Work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. There's promise of life that now is and that which is to come. So it's temporal and eternal. So you can learn to be kind with your language. I mean, I've been so rebuked on this so much of my life. I mean, my mouth in the best of times is just out of control. You know, I say stupid stuff, you know. And I, I was the youngest in my family. I'm not here to make a confession, but... I do want to frame this a little bit. I mean, I just said, I remembered today as I was meditating on it, one of the things that I've, I've, I've put deeply into my subconscious because I do not want to remember it. That was the first time that I had someone dying in our church, and this was back in 1980. First time that somebody was dying. I was 23 years old. Give me credit on that. I mean, it's, you know, there's really. I was 23 years old, and I'm, I'm over at the house this man is dying. He's obviously going to die without a miracle. And, uh, and uh, he does. And, and of course, there's the afterward time where you're with the family and then the funeral and all that. And I'll never forget it. The, the key moment when I needed something to say, 
she said, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. And I said, it's what I'm paid to do. That's what I said. 23 years old. I've never said that again. But I know what to say. I didn't know what to say. They didn't teach me that in Bible college. When someone passes away, this is what you say. They should, but they didn't. And so I, I was 23. I just said that. And, and immediately I thought, well, that was stupid. I did. But here I am, 41 years later. And you know, you could say, well, you know, we, we could take you through a session and get rid of that. It kind of needs to stay there. Because it, it bit a little bit. It bit big. Enough that I remember it 41 years later. Did any of you have anything like that in your life where it kind of... Oh, the three of us. Okay, good. Yeah. It really encourages me. Thank you. It's, it's there, you know, and you're like, yeah. So what is it? What did it do? You could just say it's a one-off or you can say, you know what? I'm going to learn how to do this right. What are the right things to say? Number one in a situation like this, I'm so sorry. I was glad to be here with you. That's so simple. In fact, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. It's a hug. It's, you know, depending on your relationship with a person, it's, it's, a, it's a hug, it's, a, it's a, a warm handshake, you know, where you just kind of hold and look in their eyes and express empathy in the moment, you know. But don't say something stupid like 23-year-old Steve. <laughs> I mean, but still, I say stuff, you know, I say stuff and, and I, I, get, I get in trouble for it, you know. Because what's happening, there's a, there's a conforming into the image of God, but I find out that what I say actually directs people's lives because you don't know what influence or power you might have in a person's life. Uh, I remember one time when I returned back to college after summer break. After summer break in a Bible college, you're trying to demonstrate great maturity that you, that you received over the summer. You know, advancement of some sort. I read the Bible every day, changed my life had an encounter with God. He pulled me up into the heavens. You know, something like that would be really good. On your first day back, we get back the first day. I sit down with a group of friends at the table and uh, we start talking. Of course, I, you know, I've, uh, I've have an overcoming, empowering way to take on uh, conversations. And let me just say, I was only, uh, you know, 19 years old. So, so we're, I'm giving all illustrations, not from last week, but from 40 years ago. And uh, I sat down and said, Wit, how'd your summer go? You know, and I start talking about it. And I thought, you know, I'm saying the right things. I don't remember what I said. I can only imagine. But at the end of it, one of my friends turned to the other and said, you know what? Some things never change. And, you know, I remember that to today. That's 42 years ago. I'm like, wow, Steve, that's that spirit of stupid again. It comes out periodically. I've got to get control. I tell you, I've devoted myself now for 40 years to try to understand human communication, how to love well. Number one, I don't want to be embarrassed again by something like that. But number two is, I want to be remembered for loving. I want the words that people remember coming out of my mouth are something of encouragement or strength in their lives that will change them. Jay, come up here for a minute. Get a microphone and come on up. Uh, He's going to lead us in just a moment. Um, I want to read one final verse. I'm sorry, there's so much here. I, it's pathetic, really. It's, uh... So here's, here's a couple things you can say in grief. I'm so sorry for your loss. That's number one. Number two, I wish I had the right words. 
Just know that I care. I don't know how you feel. It's a mistake I make a lot. I know how you feel. I don't. I really don't. You don't. I don't know how you feel, but I'm here to help you in any way I can. You and your loved one will be in my thoughts and prayers. And by the way, I take that to another level now. When I tell someone I'm going to pray for them, I text them when I'm praying for them. Because it's become a, a Christian colloquialism. I'll be praying. We know, but we don't pray. And so when I do pray, I text them and go, I'm praying for you right now. So that they know this is serious. It's not just, hey, God bless you. We love you, whatever. It's, it's got meat on the bones, you know. Another thing is my favorite memory of which person is this. You share your memory. I'm always just a phone call away. Maybe you give them a hug instead of saying anything. We all need help at times like this. I'm here for you. Anything that's communicated like that is powerful and will minister to the person. Things not to say. At least she lived a long life. Many people die young. I hear this all the time. He's in a better place. There's a reason for everything. This creates theological doubt in people's minds. Seven on here is, she was such a good person. God wanted her to be with him. There's another one. She did what she came here to do, and it was her time to go. Although these things may have truth to them, you speak the truth in love. We're learning how to love well. We're learning how to love better. Jay, Jay is really good at this, so I brought him up. Because I gave you the bad examples out of my life. He's got some good ones in his. Jay, you, you, you've done a lot of HR stuff. So nowadays, when you have to fire someone, what do you say? We, we're going to have to separate you. We're going to have to separate you? Yeah. Okay. And wh what else do you say? Is there anything else you say in the midst of that? Well, I'd probably sit him down and say, how do you feel you're doing right now in your position? You know, and they tell her everything. But typically up to that point, we've had many conversations leading up to this conversation. Right. So, so they, you've had quarterly evaluations going on. Yeah. And we always have the uh, mentality that we, we set expectations and then we coach. And then beyond that, it goes into performance management. So when somebody's sitting down across from me about to be separated, yeah. um, they knew it was coming. Right. Okay, yeah. good. So it's not out of the blue kind yeah. of a deal. Okay, if you're coaching someone, uh, let's say in... Um, in their performance, you know, and, and the performance is less than what you hoped for. How do you, how do you point that out? How do you deal with that? He didn't know I was going to do this, so he's on the spot right now. I'm okay. I'm comfy. <laughs> okay. um, so when I'm going to coach somebody, typically I don't have, I don't feel like I have the license to coach unless I've set expectations. So we've had a conversation setting up what their role or what the expectation was between the mm. two of us. And so when we sit down, I like to ask, this is my favorite one, you'll love this. So have you guys ever had somebody who doesn't do what you ask them to do? Kids, family, anybody? Anybody relate? <laughs> my favorite question when somebody isn't performing well, let's say that their task is they have to, uh, they have to turn off the lights or lock up the building or something. Oh, yeah. I'd yeah. say... What's, what's holding you back from being able to turn off the lights <laughs> and lock up the building? <laughs> what's getting in your way? What can we do to get that out of the I way? Just don't, I don't remember. I, you know, I get involved. I'm, I've been talking to people after church, connecting with them, and then it just totally goes out of my mind. Wow, that is so awesome. You know, um, I love that you're connecting with people. Yeah. Sandwich. That's so good that you're a connector. 
But um, we talked about this before, and we have a laminated sheet that I, I see right there in your pocket. It's imaginary. <laughs> that says what your, your closing task is. So what, what, what is going to help you to be able to perform? What's I think if you way? text me each Sunday, that would help out. You know? <laughs> I'm going to promote you to customer. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Stay up here for a minute. Let's all stand if we could. Jay's going to finish it out here in a minute. Ephesians 4 says this. 15, verse 15. It says, how, this is how you grow in love. This passage starts in love and ends in love. It says, but speaking the truth in love, we all know that part, why? Because we may grow up in all things into him who's the head Christ. See, Jay, even, you know, some people go, well, he's just using words to, he's using words to help a person through a very difficult situation. It's normally, it's not just, hey, you're fired, but there's love attached to it. You're still speaking truth, still directing their life, still getting them to do what you're paying them to do, have asked them to do, whether a volunteer or an employee. But, it's, but that process will grow you up into all things which is at Christ, to whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to by every effective working, by what every part does its share, causes the growth of the body and the edifying of itself in love. So think about it just for a minute. Close your eyes just for a minute. Who is in your world right now that you need to learn to love better. Think about it. Who is it? Someone will pop up in your mind really quick. We used to do this in Dale Carnegie training. We use different words. But who is it that you need to apply this principle to? That love will create change. Love will create response. Love will create whatever it is that I need in the situation. Love never fails. How can I love them? Sometimes that may be asking them questions you haven't asked them. Some of you, it might be inviting him out to lunch. Hey, we need to have lunch. You go, well, I don't want to get involved in their world. I, okay, it's part of the problem. We're called to receive downward, regardless of your personality. Receive downward, outward. Downward, outward. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Heaven to earth, shoulder to shoulder. Out, strength is the pouring out of the love of God through the channel called Steve Witt. It changes the way I speak. It changes what I hear. It changes my mentality, my vision, my judgments about people because you speak it into their lives. And when you speak it, mountains move. When you speak it, waters part. When you speak it, the dead will rise. When you speak it, dry bones begin to rattle. That's what happens in a simple community called Bethel Cleveland when we speak about love. 